My guest on this podcast has been sober from drugs and alcohol for 20 years. She is a certified higher brain living facilitator, an atlas balancer, a lifeline technique practitioner, and an artist with plans to write a book. In this episode, we share a conversation about how our culture perceives reality. We discuss a shift in how we interact with the world, constantly connected with anyone, anywhere, and the influence this has on our psyche as we participate in a world that constantly streams information. My guest helps guide people into a better sense of awareness for themselves by facilitating a change in how the brain functions. We started this episode talking about her life, a journey that brought her to communicate with a son she believed she would never meet. 24 hours after her mother's passing, the child Debbie placed for adoption 37 years ago got in touch with her. This is Inside the Mind's Eye with Debbie Loshbaugh. Life as we experience it is a big act. And that behind this big act is the player. And uh, the player is you. and vocabulary and puncture and gra- uh, grammar and punctuation and all that kind of stuff. So so what's what's the dream? Well, my dream is, you know, the book is just a small part of it. I just, um, my dream is that I, um, you know, I just think there's a massive shift in consciousness coming. And I think that is the whole reason I'm on this planet it's frustrated me that it hasn't happened yet. I think it's coming this year or in the next few years. And I'm here to help people through that with the techniques I know and with the knowledge I have. And, you know, um, you know that's, my, that's my mission. And I, I think I've been, a, I've been a healer for eons and eons and eons. And so I just have to open up and be that person that I've always been that I've forgotten pieces of. I had a psychic look at me one time, and she said, did, "She said, did you ever see that scene in Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. where he walks into that chemistry lab, and there's everything's covered up, and all the test tubes and all that stuff is dusty and all that stuff?" And and I said, "Yeah." And she said, "That's you. You have all these tools from past lives and other stuff, but um, you're just not remembering them yet. So you can learn. I've had a number of people tell me. You but can, it's in there. You can learn all the techniques you want, but you don't need them. You, you don't. Know, you have a natural whatever. Which, what, what does that look like to you? Because um, I've noticed the same thing. The idea that as a whole, it seems like uh, we're becoming more consciously aware of, I guess, the mystery of existence. The more we seem to be learning about how things work. And the more we're beginning to understand different, I get, to me it seems like ideologies mm-hmm. or groups or religious type atmospheres, we're starting to realize that the world seems to operate on stories, not truth. Right. And, and you know, we're all evolving in consciousness. That's a lot of what higher brain living is about. And, 
You know, if we could get everybody to be in their higher brains and operate from their higher brains, um, this whole world would be a different place. And I don't know what the tipping point is for that. It's not 51%, you know, but um, I just see, you know, the culture shifting. I see so many things going on that say, all right, we're going to need some intervention very soon. <laughs> right. And I think we just need some definitions and, and some language to describe what's happening. Like, when I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of Donald Trump, I'm thinking about how the media operates, I'm thinking about how social media is working, how information is so prevalent and instantaneously available, and I'm thinking about how a human brain to comprehend fact in this new age of information and technology is... It's, it's so, right now, we're, it seems that we're, we're balancing between perspective and fact so closely that people are unable to distinguish what is true from what right. is false. And there's no way to know. You know, you have to go with your own heart. And I um, certainly didn't vote for Mr. Trump. And, and I'm, you know, I'm just mortified by some of the things going on, as are other people. But they are going to pieces over it and I'm just going I'm just stepping back saying I don't get it but I think there's more going on here than what we are seeing I think I have such a belief in divine order and in the fact that this is all happening for a reason and I think that's the reason we needed an intervention of some kind divine intervention or whatever and this gets us there faster <laughs> because I, I'm everything's you. going to hell so I'm with you. So I think the trick, and I've done a lot of thinking on this, I think the trick is when a person is willing to separate their sense of self, their own story, or their own objectivity, or, or perspective, or opinion on something, when they're able to view themselves as an entity and, and understand that we will never truly know what we're shown because it's not our experience. And if we've learned anything from the last six months, it's that you certainly can't trust what you see you can't. and what you read. And I just, uh, I have a very strange belief system. And I just believe, you know, for anything that's happened to me in this life, anything tragic uh, or traumatizing that's happened to me in this life, I agree to it. I, I believe that, you know, in between lifetimes, we agree on what we'll go through in the next lifetime. And there are people or beings there to guide us going whoa no that's way too much don't go do that and some of us do it anyway just to get us closer to to god or whatever you'd like to call it get us to that place more quickly by having the the experiences that cause you to lean on that to lean into that so so you, so you mentioned about your ability to separate yourself being like with the trump thing with mm -hmm. all the huff and puff about what's going on. People seem to have a really strong opinions about these things. Yeah. And you're able to separate yourself and view it as something that's like out of your control. Yeah. But something that has purpose. That does have purpose. Influ yeah. all, everything and always I have, influences. And I have a friend who gave me three words that are probably the, some of the best advice I've ever had, which, are, which were um, be an amusement. Say, okay, <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. I don't get it, but okay. Or, you know, if somebody's furious at you, go, all right, I don't know what's going on in their world today, but I'm not going to take it personally or, you know, dive into the, I'm not going to go to every fight I'm invited to. So the ability to just be in amusement and go, 
I don't have to know everything. I don't have to know why things happen because it'll make me crazy if I try to understand all this stuff. But I just sit back and say, there's a, there's a reason. And I'm not one of those that says, you know, it's this there's, or a, that. there's a lesson in yeah. everything. Wrong. Yeah, I hate that happening. thought. But, yeah. but there, I do believe in divine order. Yeah. So. And cognitively, like part of a trait of, of our, how our brain operates is we apply meaning. And right. we, we apply reasons behind things. Whether we like it or not, it's happening. And that's part of tier four of higher brain living. You get to that place that's the awakened, enlightened place that says, you know, when I say I, I am whatever, who is that I that's talking? You yeah. know, you're observing that. So it's not you, uh-huh. you know. And so you go into that, that existential place that's really powerful. So The thing that trips me out is it's... It's so easy to look around, like out this window here. We got a parking lot full of cars. We're in a nice library. Uh, there's a probably a flag somewhere, but like an American flag somewhere. But it's it's so easy to get caught up in a world that is static and defined. It's like we've got these rules of the road. We've got the flag for America about what that represents. We got this nice public library where we don't have to pay to be here. Everything is set up in this infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And it seems people seem to know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So it makes you think that maybe, you know, reality is something static rather than. It's all a hologram. It's all a game, right? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, we just forgot who we really are, the divine beings that we are, and we're going to come back to that very, very soon. And so all of this is just a, um, I don't know what to call it, a mirage or a, it's not real. It's not uh, the end of the world like we think it is, but it is the precursor to a huge, massive shift in consciousness that's coming. It's gotten, you know, if... How do you think it can happen? Um, I don't know. I just see, like, so many people that, you know, if there's anything that Mr. Trump has done, it's that he has brought people together <laughs> against him or against his principles or whatever. We are all on the streets. You know, my biggest gripe in the last five years has been apathy. People get on Facebook and they click like and they think they're being supportive or Messed like up. meet up. I had a, I had a, I was doing a free healing circle. I, for years I wanted to do this and I was like, people need this. And a lot of people can't afford it, so let me just do it, and we'll do it for a love offering or whatever. And I found Atlanta Unity Atlanta Church in Norcross would do it for you know a third of whatever was donated, which was fine with me. I wasn't trying to make any money, maybe get a client or something. Nobody came. I did this for a year. I never had more than I think I had six people one time. Generally, it was two, maybe three, and yet I had a meetup with 105 people on it, and so. Meetup is another thing where people just go through and they click on things they sound interesting they might like to do. Nobody will get off their couch to do anything. I see more workshops go unfilled. I see more events that don't have nearly enough people there. It's just... So it's this a phenomenon. My... So this is bringing everybody off their couches, out in the street, standing up for what they believe oh, yeah. in putting people together that might have been sitting back going, yeah, you know, now we have to, now we have to get up and that's take action. A, and that's a great start because I think that we're living in a world now where our words don't hold much weight because it's so easy to like, or so easy to see, Oh, well, I, I'm envisioning a life behind my phone that says, I like to do this thing. 
But then when it comes down, I mean, what separates a, a, a strong woman or a strong man from someone else is like the willingness to take action, right? Well, I believe that my words hold weight. I have to believe that or I have no integrity, but I don't believe that anybody else's hold weight. I just, <laughs> and I, I don't say that to be cynical. No, I just I mean, mean, you know, what's what we're talking about. Yeah, and we have to be shown, right? Right. That's, it's, a, it's sad that, that it's that way, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I mean, I, I like to think the Middle Ages, right? Where, or even the, the Wild West, where like a person's word, like if you gave their word, that's all you needed to say. Like, yep. my name's John Integrity the Third, and I will be at that horse, horse cattle ranching thing on that day. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it's, who, that's who I am. I'm that person that shows up. Yeah. I'm that person that will go to the hospital room. I'm the person that'll be at the funeral, and I've noticed how few people are at funerals these days. I, mm-hmm. I grew up in the days of, um, HIV before it was called HIV when it was called GRID gay related immune disease and nobody knew how it was spread nobody knew anything and I um, I had friends dying and I wanted to get involved and I thought they'd come with me but they were so terrified to be around it they didn't want to be involved and so um, I, where was I going what were we talking about showing up like you went um, you went there to find out what the grid was and to support your friends yeah, and I ended up founding an AIDS organization against all odds in Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> the head of the health department looked me square in the eye and said, you cannot do this. Other people have tried. This city's not ready for it. I did it anyway. And um, I just had to speak up for I I, I kind of am the, the worker for the underdog, you know, people who are oppressed or... Um, whatever I, I'm the one on their side yeah. so I stand with refugees I you know I'm I'm all about that um, the Orlando shootings last year I mean I cried for seven days solid just because how many times and I um, one of my safety functions was I hung out with gay men in gay bars um, because it was a safe place for me to be drunk right I didn't have to worry about anybody, anything happening to me, and those guys took care of me. Plus, you know, I was seen on the arms of the best-looking men in the city. I got <laughs> to go to all the cultural stuff, you know, yeah. plays and symphonies and all that stuff I love. And and um, so I just thought, my God, how many times have I been in a gay bar at 2.30 in the morning? That could have so easily been me. And then so many, I have so many gay friends and so many gay friends that have died. And it, I think it brought back all that grief because mm. when you're going through it, I mean, I had to choose between three funerals in one day. I mean, it is like combat fatigue. People were dying around me so fast I couldn't process. So thank God there was alcohol back then. But the Orlando shootings really brought up a lot for me. And so I'm one of those frontline people. I'm... I'm mixed about protesting. I, I feel like I have to. I wanted to do the Women's March, and I had a really desperate client that day that I needed to take, and I wanted to do, I tried to do the Tom Price protest, and um, I just couldn't stay. I was so sick. And, but I donated signs and magic markers and all this yeah. stuff. And I don't really, you know, just energetically, I don't, I would rather protest for something as opposed to against something. Um, so I'm, I'm weird with all of that. I, uh, this might sound kind of fucked up, but like 
I, I'm, I approached it like I am all for it. For I loved seeing it with especially at the airports recently. Yeah. And then the women's march and everything. I'm like I like seeing it happen. But I'm so, I guess I'm so focused on what literally I can do in my own life to move me closer to where I want to go and to positively impact or influence people in my sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's, it's a, I guess it's a little like solliptically focused, like it's about me kind of like. Yeah, but that makes sense, and that's your part of the play, and my, yeah. my role is different. So when the Orlando shooting happened, and I'm, I'm a, it's weird with me figuring out this whole podcast thing and all this, like the app I'm developing and the writing that I do, and because my, probably the, one of the, the truest, most authentic version of me is on the internet. Like my Facebook page, my website, my shows, my videos, my writings... Those are the parts of me that like I'm fuck I'm freaking psyched to see because they're coming out from that creative space that mm -hmm. you know this is my response to what I've been through and how I perceive and how I think and feel and I'm looking at it and going here here world you can have this right and so when I think of like what I do online it's it's essential it's it's congruent with not it's not congruent yet because I'm still afraid like I, I can't just post something because I want that I always have to have a why behind why I'm doing something online so it's it's a little different than how other people operate where it's just like this is the thing I'm looking at and getting likes and comments and stuff it's like there's so much for me so much work that goes into actually being vulnerable in a, pu in a public forum all the time mm -hmm. and so when the new when the when the uh, shooting happened in Orlando and I'm looking at Facebook and all this sadness and just pain and, uh, and I felt it. But like we were talking about earlier, I, I feel dissociated from it at the same time because I'm looking out my window, the sky's beautiful, my family's around me, I've got a nice house with my roommate. And I'm just reading this Facebook thing and people are so sad. It hurt. It was just like, you know, I don't know what it's like to be in the Twin Towers. I don't know what it's like to be on a plane when, it's, when you know it's going to be crashing and you're about to die. And I don't know what it's like to be in a nightclub when things are getting shot up. But I also do know what it's like to be in front of someone who's threatening you with a firearm. I know what it's like for somebody to try and choke out a coworker when you're trying to stop them. Those are, I, it's hard for me to distinguish my real experience from the, from the pre presentation. I mean, like, if you were to go to Syria, like when I was in Israel and saw Syria, you can just look at Syria and see smoke clouds rising up. And I'm looking there watching it, staring at it, thinking, you know, a like a hundred meters or a thousand meters this way, there's people shooting at each other. So I guess I see the Orlando story and I see all the feedback of people on Facebook and it just made me so sad that people were really owning that, right? Assuming it and, and feeling it like the way you were for seven days. And my response was, went online <laughs> I downloaded the Family Matters theme song video intro onto my computer just the video of you know Urkel and Carl Winslow just it's a rare condition you know the theme song mm -hmm. and I just published it and I said I, I know the world is shit but remember that there's something everything's gonna be okay and I just shared that video and I felt like, and this is the way, when I, I always try to think about how the actions I take could be perceived. I came from a place of love and wanting people to just remember, like, it's not as bad as we think. You know, like, this happened today, it's tragic, but we've still got something to hold on to. 
But my brain also works the other way where I realize it could be perceived as me being unempathetic towards the whole situation. You know? But I'll never know that. Right. Just the way whenever I publish something or I, or I write something, I never know how, what somebody gets from it. Right. I only know what I got from the act of doing it. Right. So, yeah, that just made me think about all that. And I hadn't really thought about it in a while. So when you're writing the book, you said you didn't know how it's going to end. Yeah, because, you know, the culmination of everything was, you know, at 17 years sober, I almost threw it all away because I was so miserable. And I stood up when I picked up my 17-year chip and said, if you'd have told me on day one where I'd be at 17 years sober, I'd have blown my fucking brains out. (laughs) (laughs) I had to make a group amends for that. No, imagine that was no, but imagine, but you know, AA is about service. Imagine people in there for their first or second meeting. They're hearing this from somebody with seventeen years sober, and so I, I made the disclaimer. But I think that's the biggest bullshit ever. Like they need hope, though. They don't need to hear people griping about their problems. Who's to say what what they need? Don't, don't you remember getting sober? Like, you were going to get sober whether someone was there to help you or not. I know. A lot of people are looking for an excuse to get back out there. And they're, if they come in and people, everybody's griping about this, that, and the other, and all this stuff. It's like, why would I want to be sober? These people are miserable. So, you know, we have an obligation to talk to our sponsors about those things and to speak at meetings about our experience, strength, and hope. Not that you can't ever say that, but that's not where you want to stand up in front of a group and say that. But Man. anyway, you know, <laughs> I, I stuck it I out. Think it's I picked up. I I'd have rooted for you because I'll tell you, there's too many people floating around, three, four, five, six, seven years sober, floating around, thinking that you know I need to be a light of love for everybody. When inside, they're dying. They're fucking dying because they're not challenging themselves anymore. They're not risking themselves anymore. Yeah, I'm transparent, so, you know, there's no doubt about that. But I stuck it out to 20 years, and if I hadn't, I would have never been able to be there for my mother like I was, and I never would have met my son. So, But in the moment, at 17 years, you're like, what the But that's kind of where it all comes to in the book with everything I've been through that it comes to that, and I don't know how that ends because we did meet for... Five days later, I think, five days after my mother died, I'm meeting my son. And he had just come from putting his mother into nursing care in Birmingham. And just the whole, the synchronicities in our lives is so bizarre. And um, so we uh, met at five days. I saw photograph album after photograph album after photograph album of a happy kid. Hmm. And I didn't say that when when we talked that first time, um, he said the seven words I didn't know I needed to hear for 37 years, which were, I got everything you wanted for me. And it was so incredibly powerful for me because I, you know, I hadn't told him what I wanted for him by placing him for adoption. But he was raised by the same parents in the same city uh, in the same house, um, and he just had a, a, a great childhood. And so we met, and I just was open. I just, whatever you want out of this is fine with me. And he said he wanted to continue the relationship, and then 
then I got gooey like I am. Oh, you know, here's a song I played for you <laughs> every day in 1979. And, you know, I can write these really long. You know, he, he called me on Mother's Day and oh. I, uh, he left. It was interesting because the phone was right next to me and it didn't ring. The ringer was on and it didn't ring. And I missed it somehow. And I, it sounded to me like he was um, maybe wasted. And I played it for my sponsor, and she said, "No, he's not wasted." And then, but everybody I played it, everybody else I played it for said, <laughs> "Yeah, he's wasted." And you know, he thanked me. I mean, it was a beautiful message. You know, I deserved that after 37 years. I was, you know, March 31st of last year was the first time in 37 years I've been able to say happy birthday. So I left him a happy birthday message, and so. This is a typical example of who I am. So he leaves me this lovely message, and I write this four-page typed letter. You know, you know how I—I I don't know. It was just a, a gooey mess, and I know better. I took it by my sponsor before I did anything, and she went, "It's a beautiful, lovely letter." And what would suffice is, thank you so much. That was so sweet of you. <laughs> and she's absolutely right. You know, I could just chase him down the rabbit hole with my my ooey-gooey love. And so I didn't send that. And then I didn't hear anything else from him until July 2nd, which was the day after my mother's birthday. So she may have been in play again. Mm-hmm. And... He said that he was, he texted me that he was thinking about going to treatment. And could he talk to me? And I was like, well, he doesn't have anybody else in the family who's an alcoholic. (laughs) Perfect. And um, so I said, yeah, you got to be sober when you talk to me, but we can talk. And so we did. And you want him to be sober when he, when you guys communicate? Yeah. You don't talk to a drunk. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, so we chatted, and um, the first words out of his mouth were, I can't do that AA shit. And I went, oh, great. And I said, I don't know how to help you. And we talked about it, and it was really interesting the way Spirit was working in his life because he had a guy down the street. He'd obviously been thinking about this for a while because um, one of the questions he asked me when we met was, was there addiction in the family? And I went, oh, yeah. Welcome to the club. He said my wife was going to make me ask. You're right. My wife was going to make me ask, but I would, but I would have asked anyway. And I was like, sorry for giving you those <laughs> genes, but um, so he was asking some people around the neighborhood, and like he knew a guy that didn't drink in his neighborhood. And he's like, how do you say that to people you've gone out with for years to dinner that suddenly you're not drinking? How do you explain that? And the answers, and he was asking him about the God stuff too, and some of the answers he got, he was getting from this guy were straight out of AA. And so I was amused. I was like, he's getting... Did he getting... know they were from AA? He, that's interesting, because he... I, I empathize with your... Can I call him your son? Yeah. I empathize with him because I, I think it can be done better, if I'm being honest. Like, I, 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 the AA program saved my ass. I, I mean, I, I still go to meetings because it's the only place I know of where I can raise my hand and keep it real. Mm-hmm. on some real shit but I think there can be I think it can be done better so I empathize with them about the idea the suggestions and the overpowering of the group more so than the principles behind what we're doing and and so when he heard the 
yeah. stuff? Did he know it was from AA? Well, he found out that the guy had gone to AA for 30 years. He didn't go to meetings anymore, but he was right. still sober. So, I mean, what the perfect person was put in his life yeah. to chat about it. And so we did talk about some things. And sometimes he would talk over me because he's a lawyer. And he's very he researched everything, of course. The interesting and, thing about lawyers is to be a successful lawyer, you have to believe you're right. Even if you're wrong. <laughs> right. And you do the research to back it up, which yeah. is what he'd done. I mean, it made perfect sense. And he told me the first time we met, he said, it's really interesting. I can do depositions and I can make people tell me the dirtiest, ugliest, most horrible secrets of their life. But for me, I'm kind of shut down. Uh, he said, I can't really do that. But anyway, we talked and, and he picked one in Palm Springs that was, of course, you know, had a spa and the whole nine yards and didn't and had the least on the website about the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. Turns out it was heavily AA. So, <laughs> um, but he had, um, I realized he was bragging to me on the phone about where he was hiding his liquor. He was hiding it in um, Dasani bottles in the survival kit because who's going to go in the survival kit unless you have a zombie apocalypse exactly (laughs) and i so i left him a message and i risked everything to do this and i really didn't care i was like you know he needs to get sober and i said look i don't call you and you know i wouldn't call you if it was wasn't important and you're brilliant and you got that from me you're welcome (laughs) Um, and i said but I want you to, you, you, you've researched all of this, but you cannot research AA from outside of AA. You just can't. And I said, until you give it a chance and see what it's like. And I said, all I want you to know is this. I want you to think about this. Your very best thinking got you where you are. Your very best thinking got you on the verge of a divorce. Your very best thinking got you on the verge of losing your kids. And your very best thinking got you hiding vodka in Dasani bottles in the survival kit. So (laughs) give it a chance. (laughs) Set the analyzer aside while you're in treatment. Open up to whatever they have to teach you. And he did go to treatment. I was friends with his sister on Facebook. I know that um, his mother was very near death within two weeks of him being. And we were all just praying, please let him get through treatment. Don't make him leave treatment. And she did. She survived. He got to see her before he went home. And then within two or three weeks, I think he was 65 days sober when she died. Oh, no. And that, since it's all about me, um, that put me in a position of, you know, I said, I'm that person that shows up. And, And so what do I do? There's no guidebook for this. There's no manual that says, what does the adopt, what does the birth mother do when the adoptive mother dies? And because I would have been at the funeral, and then I didn't even know whether to send a card, to send flowers. It's so complicated because I, uh, I wanted to show him compassion and show him I was there for him and that I cared about him, but I didn't want to come off as, I'll be your new mommy, right. you know? Well, I mean, when I think about it, and I, and I do a lot of the way I perceive my place and, and how I arrived on this planet, I always think about collective consciousness. And I think it just so happens that Sid and Sherry, these two people, they're my, they're my parents. Like, it just so happens. But they're, and they're telling me that I was born with them. I, I have no collect, like memory of before two years old, so I'm going off of what they're saying, the birth certificates. But I, I feel like I'm a, a, a child of, of every person who's ever came before me. Mm-hmm. 
And so when I think about the situation with your son's adoptive mother and you, it's almost like sh- y'all are linked in the sense that she, she was there while yeah. you couldn't be there. Exactly. And now you can be there while she's not there. Well, that's his choice, whether he wants that or not. And, and I don't know that right. he does. So it sounds to so, me like y'all have this cool dialogue going on about, about the real Well, issues. I had a really powerful experience. Um, I do a, a Native American drumming circle. Yeah, I've been to the... And this is women's only. I haven't and, been to that one then. <laughs> no. And I was just trying to figure out what I could do for him to be there for him because I couldn't be there physically. He didn't want me there. I didn't think he wanted me there physically. Hmm. And during the time he was doing the funeral, I went to the Peace Chapel at Unity North, which was empty, and I sat in there and did some meditation. I, I really think I was there in the room with him somehow, some way. And then at the drumming circle two days later, or no, the next day, I was drumming and in Native American, true Native American drumming, there's really only two beats. There's heartbeat, da-dun, 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 and there's the journey beat, which is four beats per second. And so there's no rules when you're drumming in this drumming circle, but I felt like I was supposed to hold that heartbeat through the entire round of drumming, and I did. And then I realized that I was holding his heartbeat in my heart, and then at the end I was the last one, boom, boom boom, 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 and it got softer and softer until it faded away, and that was his mother's heartbeat that I was holding at the end. So that was the way I was able to honor her and honor him. And um, so, and I did have a conversation, my higher self with her higher self. Got to say a lot of things I wanted to say, and so that was that. But. I've not heard from him since then. I sent him in October a text saying, um, hey, we have this sobriety thing in common now. I'm gonna pick up my 20-year chip. And you know, he lives in Virginia. I didn't expect him to drive, but I said, if by some chance you're gonna be in Birmingham with your family that weekend and you wanna stop up here and come to a meeting with me, you don't have to do anything, just, you know. And I didn't hear anything back. And, you know, hope is my enemy because, I, you know, I, I assumed he was not coming. I did not expect him to come. But what I found out, what I find out is there's always this much hope there that, you know, and then when it doesn't pan out, I'm hurt. And so that was hard for me, and I, and I didn't hear from him at my birthday, Christmas, or New Year's. Now, for all I know, he's got a sponsor who's saying no contact with her until you're a year sober. I don't know what the situation is, and I try to follow what the program has taught me to to be so grateful for the meeting that we had, to not have any expectations, to allow whatever happens to happen. Um, But I got to tell you, after we met, the, the pull in me, the craving for more time with him and more anything was more powerful than any longing for a drink I've ever had. Mm. I had to use what I learned in the program and ask the, ask my higher power to have the obsession removed because I did. I thought about it 24 hours a day and there was nothing I could do about it, but it was incredibly powerful, that pull to 
spend time with your child, you know. And so, um, so that's why I say I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how the story ends. Which Man. Is- <laughs> I know a great beginning for it. Holy shit! <laughs> the beginning, the beginning is the picking up the seventeen-year chip, saying, "If I, you know, this is the worst. This well, is they the say worst don't, thing ever. Don't, don't quit five minutes before the miracle happens. Right. That is so the truth. I so. mean, that's such a scene being in front of a meeting and just you, you're saying, you know, like keeping it real, like you did to get sober, and it's you, you're saying, if I'd have known this at day one, I, I wouldn't have never picked that chip, like." What a way to grab an audience or to, a reader is to say, you know, like, I'm here and I've been <laughs> what doing a, it. What a great meeting. They left with, like, what a bummer. <laughs> what a downer, <laughs> man. Man, I'd have been cheering you on. I'd have come up to you right afterwards and been like, hell yeah. Like, no, that story began long before that, so. Right. So th- th- that's the thing. I want to talk about writing with you. So what, what's it been like for you? Like, uh, like, the story needs to get told. And is there any resistance preventing you from taking the pen to the paper or the the fingers to the keyboard yeah I'm busy (laughs) Um, you know and there's so many chapters to this from the abuse and the trauma in the childhood to the uh, social anxiety to the alcoholism to the whole stint with um, HIV and all the work I did around that and then the gay community that I lived in and to um, being in IT for 30 years and then moving into having the universe push me into doing what I'm supposed to be doing with healing and then um, the care for my mother and then her passing and then my son coming back and you know it's like he was in my arms for a minute and then he went away for 37 years now he's back in my arms and now he's gone again so I mean it's a life a full life. I know. That's a, why for that to be caught in a book. Yeah. Right. It's overwhelming, but the whole story needs to be told. I mean, it's a hell of a story, and just you know, every the way thing it's happened and the way it's worked out, and you know. Do you think that something like this is helping or hurting you telling that story? No, I think it'll help for me to go back and look at all the things I've talked about, and you know, as disjointed as it was, and out of order as it was, and you know, put it together. But, you know, right now I'm trying to build my healing practice and, you know, there's more important things than the book. Yeah. What else is important? Um, you know, doing demos for higher brain living and getting more people interested in that, increasing my clientele. Um, I just put on a huge event with bringing Dr. Michael Cotton, who's the head of higher brain living, who developed it to Atlanta. And that just took an unbelievable amount of effort. There were three of us, and it was a huge effort um, to do that. A lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of just times I couldn't do anything else. And, you know, I, I finally had to sit down and make a list the other day of the things I need to do because there are so many. I mean, just from, you know, an oil change and see why my tire keeps going flat and this stuff that I can't get to. Yeah, I'm with and, you. And so... I'm a 29-year-old baby. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to do any of that shit. So I just try to do my best. Like, right. Man. All right, so so the brain the brain living and everything. I want to go through a, uh, just a couple more things. We're almost done here. It's an hour and 15 minutes. I've really enjoyed this. Um, yeah, I think you do have a story that needs to be written. Yep. 
I'm, I'm interested to know, though, the why behind it, right? The why is because I have to. Because you have to. The, the divine is pushing me, saying, you got a story here that needs to be told. But 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 the your life right now is focused on the high brain limit. Yeah, I got to bring an income. You got some tires you got to worry about, you know. Yep. So this it seems to me the writing of this story is kind of still kind of bubbling in the back of the surface of your mm-hmm. mind. It's not it's not a need to yet. Right. How do we get it to a need to? I don't know. It's more important to you than it is to me. I mean, it's there. There's just a lot of pieces, and I don't want to be in a hurry about it. I don't want to. You know, I want it to be done right. And, you know, huh. so I guess it, it will float to the top when it's time. When it's uh, time. And, you know, I'll keep writing a piece here and a piece there. And, you know, I'm not, I hate journaling. I never did that. But there are things that happen that I need to make a note of. You know, there's been some stuff that's happened in the last few months, couple months, that's just been wow. You know, just a roller coaster, and that needs to get down on paper before I forget it. So yeah, well, do you do you type at all? Are yeah. you a good typer? I, I do every morning. I write, and I, sometimes it's journal, sometimes it's just stream of conscious, where I just move my fingers, and I make myself do it. It's like going to the gym or or uh, studying or working out, whatever it is. It's like I just know after I wake up and drink my coffee and have my cigarettes, I need to get my fingers moving. Doesn't matter what I'm writing about. I just need to know, so I can't, so I won't be afraid of a blank page. Mm-hmm. So now it's, I'm no longer afraid. I just learned, or cons- or like it's like I've I've developed a, uh, a, I guess a mode within myself that says it doesn't really matter. You just capture it, and you'll figure it out if it's good or not later. Yeah, and part of it is it's there's so much in the story. It's a little daunting. Oh to, yeah. So, but I just got to write one one chapter at a time. And that's why I pick one subject, write about it, pick another subject, and then I, you know, put it together afterwards. So, have you ever published anything that you've written online for other people to read? I mean, published? No, um, I got published in Spirituality and Health magazine for my suggestion for um, how to relax, which was something I learned from a the head of a. Um, well, not not holistic, what do you call it? People that come in at the end of life. Hospice. Hospice, yeah. I learned from a hospice person, which was, um, I keep a bottle of bubbles in my car cup holder. And when I sit in rush hour traffic, I blow bubbles out the window. It doesn't work in the winter. It doesn't work with your air conditioner on. <laughs> so there are rules. But, yeah. but it is the most amazing chunk of reality you let first of all i'm having a blast <laughs> and second of all the bubbles are going up past people's cars and they're going you know where is that coming from and and they're waking up and i had one guy get mad at me because i was getting bubbles on the car he just washed um <laughs> he was behind me i had a had another i had a, a people with in a van um pull up next to me in the wrong lane with children in the back seat going, more, give us more, please do it oh, some more. Right <laughs> and, you know, I think it's the most fun you can have for under a buck. I yeah. Mean, you know, and, and it's an awesome study in human behavior and human consciousness and the reactions that you yeah. get. One woman, one, you know, gorgeous guys in their convertibles waving at me and <laughs> women saying, you have made my day. So, you know, it's it's an interesting, but that's the only thing I've been published for. I right think. on. That's a good thing, though. Yeah, so, my story's published in Dr. White, two, uh, one of Dr. Wiseman's books who developed the lifeline technique. But, you know, 
that's just my experience. Is it okay if I put your information in the show notes so if people want to contact you for any of the services, Atlas Balances, Lifeline Techniques, or High Brain Living, any of those things? Yep. Could you do a quick, just uh, just describe it real quick if someone's listening and maybe they want to participate and get some of your time to... Okay, the Lifeline Technique is what I started out doing after um, burning out at massage. And it is... Um, the premise is that all issues in your life, whether they're physical, emotional, mental, financial, relationship, are all created by emotions that we haven't processed. And so when that pain in your stomach comes up, it's trying to say, hello, there's an emotion here that need, that's trying to be get your attention. So uh, we do use infinite love and gratitude, which is a phrase a lot of people have heard now, to release that, to find, we find the emotions, find out how they're expressing, and then we release them. And then atlas balancing is sound healing, actually. So many people, this is the atlas bone in the neck, and so many people will go to an atlas practitioner to get their atlas put in place because it feels so good when your atlas is in place, and virtually everybody's is out of place. And it won't stay, but maybe, usually it's hours, other times, you know, the most, two or three days. And, but it feels so good, they keep going back and giving more and more and more money, and this puts the atlas in place permanently. Uh, if it ever comes out, I put it back in, but I've yet to have. Now, there have been some people I had to do it four or five times because they were so screwed up. Mm-hmm. Their necks were so screwed up. But um, essentially, it's a one-time treatment, and it's no touch. I've done this. I did this with a woman in Macon completely over Skype. She was so sore afterwards, it proves to me that things were moving. You didn't even have to touch. Didn't you touch don't have her. to touch I don't anybody. have to touch anybody. This is not a chiropractic Could you adjustment. do it to everybody listening right now? Like, could no, we... <laughs> not for free. <laughs> could we like, fix no, that? No, there's a whole series 100... of sound codes that it's, it's a vocal technique. By the way, and... it's just my Uncle Dave listening, probably. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Uncle Dave. <laughs> we almost fixed your atlas. Yeah. Um, and then in two weeks, there's a follow-up, but there's usually nothing left to clear after the two weeks. It's pretty amazing. A lot of people don't know. Fascinating. It. I know. Um, and then higher brain living is just an extraordinary leap into higher consciousness. Um, it is a series of sessions that take 22 weeks. You have to either attend a demo or see three of his videos online to because you need some context around what's happening. Mm-hmm. And we energize, we do certain contact points that energize um the energy that we have in our body and and move it towards the higher brain. We live from our lower brain, Uh which is the one that um, evolved back in the cavemen days. And the whole point of getting through the day was not to get killed, not to get eaten by a tiger. So no matter what you had to go through, if you got home and you didn't get eaten by a tiger, you had a successful day and you're going to do exactly the same thing the next day. So we don't have tigers today, but we have job stress, we have relationship stress, we have all this other stuff. Ideas and Donald Trump. Right. And, you know, I, I drew, I made a poster for this little boy I worked on one time, and I said, here's, oh, here's a food source, here's um, a tree with fruit on it. Right outside the door, all you got to do is go up the hill, but there's a boulder there, and as he walks by, a, a, a spider, a tiger comes out from behind the boulder. And so he makes it back home, but, and that, and that turns out the tiger was lost and the tiger will never, ever be back again. But he is never going to take that path again. Hmm. So there's this path that he tries the next day. And there's um, mosquitoes everywhere. He has to go through a swamp. He has to walk through thorns. 
he has to go through all these things to get to this food source and he doesn't then he has to come back and go through all those things again to get home but he got home safe so matter no matter what he has to go through he's going to continue to use that path now he doesn't even know there's two paths right here that the food source is just as close but he's never going to look at him because he find out he found a way to get home safely and this is what we do that that our lower brain says sameness equals safety Mm. Don't change anything. Mm. It might be unsafe. You might not come back alive. And so this is why you make a resolution. You're all excited about your new diet, your new fitness program, all this stuff. And and you're just compelled to do it. And six weeks later, you are repelled by those same thoughts. Because we literally don't have the physiology to make sustainable change. Because we have this lower brain fighting against us. So in 22 sessions, we pretty much rewire the neural pathways to the higher brain. And if you were to stop and think about the best day of your life uh, and those feelings, those are your higher brain feelings. Mm. The only people that register any activity in their higher brain are uh, Tibetan monks who have meditated for 30 years. Because people say, oh, this sounds like a good idea. I'm sure I'm in my higher brain when I'm writing poetry or whatever. You're not. It's not easy to get to. Mm-hmm. But this is one way to get to it. And, you know, it involves um, the four dimensions of life, mind, body, relationships, and environment, which is everything else. And you learn, we teach you how to put yourself in your higher brain after a certain point. We anchor these points, and, and people have this huge breath, this salutogenic breath. Now, I'm a terrible breather. I can't even breathe deep. I smoked for 30 years, and I, my lungs are crap. So... When I take this massively huge breath and my body, my whole body expands, it's not my lungs. And that's what happens when we put this information in through contact points and the body has a spontaneous response to the breathing and eventually there is a wave. You start moving, your hips come up and then your head tucks down and and you have this salutogenic wave that goes on. And that's when you are truly in your higher brain. Yeah, let me let me say here too, just to tie everything in, we're talking about the collective consciousness, consciousness and becoming more aware as a group or as a species. Essentially, what you just described is the truth of where we're at today, is we move towards things that are comfortable and that are safe because ideas are the things that frighten us, the potential or the work involved in actually expressing ourselves authentically or discovering what it means to be alive or what it means to be human or what it means to even be me are things that are not addressed in our day and age. It's how do I get this thing finished, this thing done so I can have a house and a home and a family and a kids and all these things and be content. And then we beat ourselves up because we don't do what we thought and it's not our fault because all the work we do with tapping and affirmations and all this stuff is in the mind. Exactly. And the mind is not the problem, it's the brain. Right. This is a whole different approach to, it's the brain physiology that needs to be taken care of. So when you live from your higher brain, it is an, it's like that best day of your life all the time. It's confidence, it's bliss, it's joy, it's... But it takes work to rewire it, yeah. Yes, it takes 22 sessions and it takes, once you learn how to put yourself in your higher brain, you have to do it twice a day. It takes about 15 minutes. You get in your higher brain, and then you state your resolutions. It's R-E-S-O-U-L, resolutions. And so you might say, you know, I eat healthy green food and drink lots of water as my action step. And then my end step is um, 
I have so much energy and my, I'm, my body is completely healthy and all these things. And these are not affirmations. When you open up and you're in your higher brain and you implant these thoughts in your higher brain, it's totally different than an affirmation which affects your mind. Right. So then you're able to accomplish your goals and to, to do these various things that, that are helpful to you. So. Because the truth of the matter is everything is always changing all the time. And it doesn't have to be on the world's time. It can be on your time. So this is one of the things I, I've noticed listening to all these podcasts and reading stories, everything. There's inflection points that happen to people that force them to change, and it's a very arduous, painful process that happens all at once where your whole life shifts on edge, and you go, what the fuck am I doing with my life? You can literally wake up tomorrow and decide to do something with your life differently, and it starts with what you just talked about, rewiring your brain and understanding what it means to, under, to, to see the world in a different lens of perspective and your place in it. And you're right. The crocodile portion of our brain, the part that's saying, you know, I just need comfort. I, I don't, you know, the only thing I'm afraid of are these ideas or these, you know, whatever. Yeah, I might not be safe if I change. I might not stay alive. We don't, we're not even aware of that. But our I know lower it. brain will fight against us to keep us from doing these things that we're supposed to do. Yeah. I know it. You know it. Everybody knows it. You got to get on the higher brain learning. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing I do is energetic fusion, which is kind of a combination of everything I've ever done. So it's kind of, you, of yeah, it's it's, it's kind of like lifeline on steroids. It's it's uh it's really powerful, deep, intense work. So, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna put your information in the show notes, Debbie Loshbau. Very good. And all you gotta do is reach out to her. You guys can schedule sessions and and do it up and start to tap into the infinite potential of the human spirit. Beautiful. There it is. And that's the whole point is to bring find the tipping point in humanity that brings us into higher consciousness because we've evolved through five epochs at various times in humanity and there's about to be a sixth and that's why I'm here. Mhm. So That's why we're here. Exactly. So uh, yeah, thanks a lot for joining me. That was uh, you know, I, I when I did it before when I just made a Facebook status. I tagged you in it that I was interviewing oh. a writer. I think you're much more than a writer. Oh yeah, so writing do, is just down the list. I'm I'm a healing I'm a healing person, healing practitioner. So. So when 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 this thing gets released, we're gonna be. It'll be. It won't be necessarily just about writing. It is what it is, of course. But I think you're more than just a writer. So I'm gonna oh, yeah. make a note. And we did it. Yay! Yeah.
Say